Hey, so we have a name now. We do. We're do, the multilog. The multilog. You can yeah. say it with uh, with an Eastern European accent if you'd like. The <laughs> multilog. The multi. No, that's. I don't know. It's like uh, the Fifth Element lady, Mila Mila Jovovich. Wow, I said that. Okay. Wow. Yeah, the multilog. <laughs> I like it. I think it's. Uh, why is it called that? Because people are going to ask. Do you want to answer that? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could read the album art because uh, right now it's just the <laughs> definition. We haven't That's true. made That's actual it. art. It's just the definition of it. But it's just, uh, I guess it's just another word for dialogue. I don't know why both words exist, but... Because we're in the social media age era, so they yeah. had to make a new word for that. <laughs> I, I feel like it's appropriate because we both tend to belong, well, more than, uh, me more than you, but I tend to be long-winded, so sometimes I monologue. Mo- right. A lot of times, right? Often, thank yeah. you. <laughs> and then, and then sometimes I want you to monologue, and you do because you're good at like just like our friend Tyler uh, Matthews. You're really good at <laughs> car salesman pitch. <laughs> Which, by the way, I'd like to point out just for for posterity's sake, if you put uh, either Anthony Colangelo or Tyler Matthews in front of a camera, they can go on for ten minutes with no breath. Like, yeah, we got really good at selling stuff by the end of, <laughs> of Full Sail. It's insane. Yeah, we did a video for, like, I think, the release of an app or something. And everybody else, the French people, the Oklahoma, the Indiana people, were all like, well, <laughs> and, like, we giggled and we failed and we, like, mistakes and we, like, just get all the time. They start talking 10 minutes later, still talking. I you, still think it's because we, we knew how to interrupt each other. Yeah. Like, that was my theory the whole yeah. time. Because Tyler grew up, I don't know, 20 minutes from where I grew up. Yep. And... We hadn't met until school, then I think we just knew how to interrupt and how to talk with each other. Also very we, easy. Like, could, See? Like, I suck forth. at it because yeah. I, <laughs> I should have seen that you were still moving your hands, and that's the thing. You both that's move your tone. hands when you talk. <laughs> when you stop moving your hands, it's like, you can move yours now, buddy. Uh, so so what, anyway. do you, what do you want to talk, talk about this week? Yeah, so I, I've been... Uh, this is like the idea that's been, that's been obsessing me in the last week. I think I texted you like... Tuesday night or something. Mm-hmm. Um, How excited you were! I guess I, I realized Tuesday. I figured out the uh, the Apple NDA thing uh, was... changed this year. Mm-hmm. You can now talk about technical details as long as you don't post screenshots or do full OS reviews, like for the user side of things, or like benchmarks, um, yeah, or anything like that. So, but you can talk about the full technical details, um, which had me excited because some of the things that Apple announced at WWDC last week. Um, were kind of directly related to our world in terms of responsive design. Mm-hmm. And they've been pretty interesting. Um, I've been doing a lot of reading on it. They call it adaptive UI. Mm-hmm. And it's based in adaptive type thinking, which is, you know, like the set sizes, not not a full continuum of sizes and all that. But uh, if you put it all together with what they've done in the last, I don't know, two, three, four years, um, it's really the, the frameworks there for responsive design as a whole. So it's kind of cool because, so if you think about their whole history, right, they they kind of have a weird uh, relationship because they, they've avoided it for... Yeah, it, for was, a, it was a big, ever. like, everybody was saying, like, they don't give up, like, they're not paying attention to responsive. And and I keep talking about this with um, Mark Hewitt from Happy Cog, who I work with, and, and we've kind of settled on the fact that we think they were against it because it goes against the original iPhone's pitch, where it was like, you got the full internet, you don't have the yeah. mobile web or anything. So to adapt that... It. Yeah, so that brought with it all the pinching and zooming and everything like that. Um, so the, I, I think they initially, be, before they understood responsive design, they were anti-responsive design because 
Why, why do you need responsive? We give you the full internet on our phone. Mm-hmm. And that was like a... It seemed very un-Apple, if you ask me. Yep. But, um, so I, I think they were kind of against it from the start. But then over the years, they've kind of... Uh, as they've gotten more diverse in their device sizes, they've, they've come around to the responsive way of thinking. So like fragmentation made them do that, basically. Yeah, because back in the day, they had, you know, they had the three and a half inch iPhone. They, mm-hmm. didn't, have, they didn't have anything else. Do you remember... They, sorry. Did the, you, I remember what? When it started going that way. So when it started, it's like, is it, is it just when the, the new, device size, new device sizes coming, started coming out? Or is it just I think else? so. Well, okay, so they first... I, they followed the similar path of the web, which was adaptive first and then responsive, right? We've, we've, mm-hmm. We did the whole adaptive thing for 10 years, and then we figured out, oh, we can do this in a better way that's more... Fluid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they, you know, they started out with one size, and then they added on an iPad. And what they said to developers was, okay, just build a different app. Like, use a different storyboard... Or not, it wasn't even storyboards then, but use a different view controller... Design everything differently. There are separate apps. There are separate targets. Build them separately. They should work differently. All of that. They they completely separated the two. And that was kind of the start of the adaptive type thinking. Um, and then, what was the iPhone 5? A uh, year ago? Two years ago? Yeah. Yeah. Almost two years ago? <laughs> Almost two years ago. I guess, okay, so I guess two years ago at, at WWDC, they released um, a thing called Auto Layout, which was... Yeah. Yeah, it was like a relationship-based uh, layout mechanism where you can lay out your app in terms of how things relate to other things how this button relates to that button this thing should be no more than 20 pixels away from the other thing which for anybody Um, who's done css is like yeah exactly (laughs) something i wish the web had but but they released that two years ago and the reason they did was then a couple months later they released the iphone 5 which had the taller screen Mm. so Makes now sense. it's not a different target like the iPad was, where it was like, you know, code a new app, create a new interface, all that. Now it was, your old app just stretched a little bit. <laughs> so a little so, bit of an adapt. Yeah, so that was like the first hint of responsive was auto layout, because they, they had these existing apps that just needed to, to respond to the different screen size. But now they had, you know, that, then there's, they, they start looking at this, and they have the iPhone width, the iPhone height, the tall iPhone height, um, the iPad width, the iPad height, all of those dimensions. Now they have five dimensions they're working in because of portrait and landscape. Mm-hmm. So they started, I guess, I guess that stubborn way of thinking kind of started breaking down, but it was still manageable. And uh, this year, uh, they've released a thing called size classes in iOS. Hmm. Um, I, I'd put a link in the show note, Doc, you have it. It's the developer.apple.com slash library slash pre-release, all that crap. Yeah, I was looking at that. So they they released this thing called size classes, which they've basically created um, what we know as breakpoints in iOS. <laughs> but they've only created two right now. So they have, com- they have compact and regular. Okay. So things can either be compact height, compact width, regular height, regular width, any combination of those. Which, so if you which look one is that, compact? Exactly. This is the this is what I wanted to talk about. They they've created this weird wording and I, I have some theories about this. So regular is iPad sized. Okay. That makes sense. So iPads yeah. in portrait or landscape are regular in both directions. Hmm. So the regular height regular. Yeah, width. I just yeah, looking at the You can see that like they have a cool little chart thing if you go mm-hmm. if you go click that link in the show notes for size classes, check it out. The iPhones though are are a little funny because it's compact width, regular height. What? But if you turn it sideways, it's compact height, compact width. Oh, uh, that's not going to be confusing for anybody. Not at all, right? <laughs> <laughs> but 
but yeah, they've 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 essentially created breakpoints um, in iOS, but they are hard coded. There's basically one breakpoint. So if you follow the pattern of, you know, where they created auto layout and then they released it and they needed a device that handled that, oh. this kind of lends its hand to the fact that there is a bigger iPhone coming. Huh. Um, the weirdness comes in when you start thinking, okay, well, is it going to be regular width? width? Yeah, that that would make sense. So, so I'm looking at, I'm describe what we're looking at. It Like the figure three on this website is iPhone says classes in portrait and in portrait mode, it has regular height and compact width. In landscape, it's compact height, compact width. So whatever that new device is, it would seem to make sense that it would have a regular height and compact and regular width in, uh, in portrait mode. And maybe in landscape, double regular again? Yeah, exactly. We have no idea. Huh. But this gets even weirder when you, if you watch some of the sh- sessions they've released. And everything's open this year. There's yeah. no, you don't need a developer account to watch these sessions, which are kind of cool. So I put two of them in the show notes as well. One where they've even outright... Um, they have a session about responsive design, which is a big step for Apple. <laughs> um, and another about their what they're calling this adaptive UI, which is just this breakpoints. But in those, they don't even talk about, you know, size classes aren't just for the entire device. Size classes for, can be for um, containers within your, uh, an interface. So if you think about their example, they keep coming back to is mail on, the, on iOS. Um, think about it in iPad and in landscape. Mm-hmm. There's the sidebar that yeah. looks like the iPhone view right oh. those are both compact so it's a compact iphone view so you can but reuse on the that iPad, view it, exactly it's the same view oh, nice so but that's that's where this gets a little weirder that makes me think that they've built this in a responsive way rather than adaptive even though they're kind of branding it as adaptive right now because they have these these views that can be shared from iphones to ipads and they take the size of their com- of their uh, context so it's a very adapt or uh, responsive type of thinking where you're taking your parent context width into consideration with your layout. Wait, it's so something that it's always it's always a point of confusion I feel for people who dis- discover adaptive responsive. So like if you reiterate the definition, adaptive is you'll just you'll just not care at all what the what the container is. And you, you'll just expand? No, to... it's just set sizes. So okay. instead of having a, fl- a fluid, flexible kind of framework of your system, you have, a, you have these set sizes that you're targeting. So right now, their set sizes are 320, mm-hmm. 768, all that. And that would um, be more like adaptive or responsive? That would be adaptive, yeah. Okay. And then there's the, you know, what I'm saying is that if these things can actually be, if the size classes don't just determine the viewport, or if the viewport doesn't determine the size class, but the context does, that's a much more responsive way of thinking because now you can put any size class in any view, and it'll or the other way it around, out. other way around. Right. Yeah. So, but it's like it's very, it's very odd because I I feel like, um, they've set the groundwork for responsive in yeah. their, at the heart of their system. They've because you know in in typical Apple way, I could see them saying, we've exposed these two size classes right now. But in, you know, in a year or two, saying, now you create your own size classes. And now you're basically creating your own breakpoints. Huh. And I think that's the direction they're going. But I don't think that, whether it's subconscious or conscious, I don't think they think the developer community is ready for it. So they're just right. seeding it slowly so that yeah, people get so, used to it. Yeah, right. So it kind of seems like there's this smaller force within Apple that has this responsive way of thinking. <laughs> 
and you know, because us on the web, we're very used to the responsive way of thinking. We weren't always, but we are now. So speaking, and of, I think if you unleash that on uh, on developers who have been fixed with yeah. thinking for years, it would be very weird. So I, I kind of have a feeling that Apple's put these two size classes there as a as a way to to make teaching it easier and to to create like an easier introduction to the responsive mindset that we've all been working with and introduce that to iOS, iOS and Mac developers. And then, you know, in, in a year or two saying, now you create your own size classes and we have fully responsive native apps directly in the SDK. Hmm. Which is, I, I just, I don't know, it's, it's really something that's been kind of interesting. And the weird thing you brought up earlier, they call iPad with regular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. They've, I don't know, they've like... It's it's a nice shift too because I mean that used to be no that used to be the expanded view like right, you yeah. thought about it the different which would mean that they're taking the different approach that web developers would would where we generally tend to start with the smaller size and expand to the bigger size that way it's easier to like think we layer in stuff instead of removing stuff. Uh, w- one thing that I I remember around the time so exact I think it's about the time where the five so the five the taller iPhone came out. Um, which for me was a disaster because I have a tiny, these tiny hands and I, I can't. So d- a designer called Dustin Curtis, who is uh, infamous, I guess, um, released a, a nice little graphic before. Th- and it's funny because Apple ended up using that graphic to justify themselves as well later where he was, uh, he was showing basically the, uh, the radius. Yes. The radius of an, of a thumb from the edge of an iPhone and where most or his thumb, I think, was uh, capable of reaching across the screen or not. And when the 3.5, so the 3.5-inch iPhone existed, his thumb could reach the middle of the top left icon, uh, assuming you're holding with your left hand. Or your right hand, I'm sorry. So if you're holding the phone with your right hand and you just rotate your your thumb up and down, you should be able to touch pretty much every icon, maybe except the top the top left one, but you, you might be able to reach. With the 5, whenever the 5 came out, then suddenly, even if you had a big enough hand, and for me it was like not even happening anymore, you could not reach that damn top left icon, which for me was really annoying because I have to add a lot of people, like women, because I have like women-sized hand, basically. Uh, they They couldn't reach, I have these women-sized hands, and they couldn't reach the, the top um, icon without repositioning their grip, which to me was a really weird decision because they had been, just like you said, advocating for we made the perfect size because we thought about it very hard at the very beginning, which is a very Apple way to think about things. Okay, we consider different sizes. We've seen the prototypes when they were released during the, the Samsung Apple trial. Uh, we had the tons of really cool designs that ended up being like later versions of the iPhone. And you could see that they've had, they had considered really tall, really wide and stuff like that, but they went back to smaller because it was a better grip. It was easier to handle in the street as a single hand grip. Um, the thing I remember, sorry, I'll let you cut in right now. But the, the thing I remember around that time when the five came out is people discovered they people had been trying to like the the good old web designer thing of like swipe it, like re- reducing the width of a website to see oh is it responsive they they had tried that on apple.com so many times and people kept saying oh apple apple's not doing responsive and one day someone got smart and they took the bottom of the screen and they realized that in their uh, macbook air they could see more stuff 
on the Apple website than on, they could see less stuff on the MacBook Air, 11 inch MacBook Air than they could on their iMac. And they were like, wait a minute. And if you drag, I put a link in the show notes if you don't know apple.com. Uh, if you drag apple.com up, the right now it's uh, it's OS X Yosemite, completely new Mac, com- uh, completely new, completely Mac. And the image slowly loses the Yosemite logo, the OS X logo, if you go up. Basically, it just becomes a little more adapted to the that height, not the width. Like, they don't care about the width for some reason. Um and yeah, it, you know, the funny thing is the first time they did something like this was on the iPhone 5 landing page. Mm-hmm. I remember they did this, the same thing, but they only did it for the height of the iPhone 5 and the iPhone 4. So the iPhones could see the entire the, the uh, website like hero without image, scrolling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really But cool. yeah, they've only used it in vertical <laughs> uh, methods. But you brought up something interesting that was the conversation I was having earlier with, again, Mark Hewitt from Happy Cog. Um you said like Apple way, right? Where they where they were yeah. so set on this size as the exact size they wanted early on, and they've since you know reneged, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he was kind of, he's kind of wavering back and forth whether this is actually a responsive approach or whether this is adaptive or whatever it is. He's kind of wavering back and forth about what their long term goal is. And at lunch today, he was I think he's since switched his opinion on this. But at lunch today, he was saying that. It'll never be truly responsive because they want so much control over their, you know, their exacting interfaces. And I get that, but they, I think they know now from, you know, the fact that they were so set on that stubby iPhone size and then they've <laughs> stretched it out. And now they're presumably watch going... It. You watch it. Don't call it stubby. <laughs> now, they're, now they're presumably going bigger, uh, like Android phone thing, like that kind of size now. <laughs> so, like, I feel like they've they've experienced this over the years just from... You know they 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 don't know what people are going to want in you could say yeah they always know what people are going to want but they don't actually know what size devices people are going to want in two or three years so they can't set themselves up for failure by you know enforcing the adaptive way of thinking. But what bothers or me? They shouldn't. I could. That's true. But at the same time, like every time that that conversation was uh, happening between I don't know Android, it's almost oh this is going to be the worst way to define that. But hey, <laughs> you know what? We have a mature rating, so who who cares? It's almost like Apple is you know. Android is pro-choice and Apple is not pro-choice. And, and when wow. I say that, okay, let me, let me qualify. It's very dangerous. So see, I'm setting my camp as the, as the evil, well, in my mind, the not very friendly camp. Um, if, you, if you think of, uh, of choice as uh, Barry Schwartz, so if you don't know Barry Schwartz, this is exactly a thing I, sh- I should put in the show note. Uh, he wrote a book called The, the Paralysis of Choice, I think. And it's like a required reading or at least like perusing. I think he made a TED Talk in 2004, Paralysis of Choice. Uh, Barry Schwartz basically explained that if you, yeah, paradox of sort of choice, actually, not the paralysis. But um, he basically, I think the example he got was um, after the, the Second World War, a lot of the Eastern European uh, supermarkets had very few items. I'm going to say it like you, items. Uh, <laughs> on the shelves, there were may- maybe two of... One thing, maybe two, you know, cereals, two t- types of sugar, stuff like that. And in the U.S., there were like, you know, 15 different types of items because it's plentiful and there's plenty of brands and competition and stuff like that. And they basically looked at how easily people picked and, buy, and bought stuff in, in the supermarket. I think I am vaguely really recalling this from far. And whenever the 
they were liberated from you know the this the soviet grip and those countries suddenly it was okay to have consumerism and have tons of items and tons of choice because that was the symbol of freedom right more choice equals more freedom and people like had a hard time deciding a much much harder time deciding so what how which is i don't i don't maybe that maybe this one so actually sales went down i think or something like that. Basically, whenever you try an experiment and there's maybe seven choices and there's three choices, generally, it's easier to sell three choices because people have less variables to hold in their head. And it's not to say that people are dumb. It's just to say that when you do your work as a designer, you should try to come up with the absolute best choices you can possibly think of. And I feel like Apple... If they if they start to cave in, this is where my point starts to actually connect. Uh, <laughs> they Take put a long way, little, little markers. <laughs> long way to the this point. is why we say multi logs because yeah, he does he does less than that. So um, if Apple starts to say, okay, this is what people want now, then they stop saying we've analyzed the problem as designers and we're going to give them what they need, not what they want, which is super controversial. Uh, uh, yeah, but I don't know if that's... I'm not necessarily saying that they should have devices of every size, but I, I think the the point is that, like, by setting yourself up to be responsive in nature, right, if they slot in a device at any particular size, yeah. you're not going to have to do that much work to, to adjust so for as it. A so de- like they, as a developer. As a developer, right. yeah. yeah. So, like, when they... You know, if we go ahead and, and get our apps ready for iOS 8 right now and have it out by September... And they announced the iPhone 6, and it's, I don't know, what, four and a half, five inches diagonal, whatever? Please, no. It'll, it'll work, right? It'll, it'll respond to that, and it'll, you won't have to update your app for iOS or iPhone 5. Like, there was that whole scramble, like, oh, this app's not updated for iPhone 5, and it was like the short little app in the middle of your screen letterbox. So assuming that. people use the size classes you mentioned, right? Assuming well, people I mean, get on technically that you could just do that with auto layout, but okay. you can create it, you know, it's just, it's the whole thing where like you can create a, a more universal app. You can use one storyboard for iPhone and iPad. But my point is that the iPhone six probably fits into the size classes they've set up now. But what if they added, I don't know what the hell they're going to do, but what if they added a bigger, what if people, you know, Fox News, one of those iPads <laughs> to be actual iPads, right? Like if they, I'm not, they would have, you know, size class insane and it would be that ipad for the whole desk or whatever but my point is not that the iphone 6 would would kind of break this adaptive type thinking where there's two two size classes but devices in the future uh you know we might as well set up for this and that's kind of reinforced i should mention that in xcode this year um in xcode 6 one of the simulators you can run on is the resizable iphone and resizable ipad and that lets you type in what pixel dimensions hmm. like you remember those sites that let us test responsive right. apps yeah, or yeah. responsive you know you could type in whatever pixel dimensions you yeah. want you can do that with an ipad now and it will show you your app as if it was running on an ipad that's 500 pixels wide by 1024 tall that's weird and there's no reason to make that happen unless you're thinking responsively yeah the weirdness comes in be, uh, in that the interface for it lets you set pixel dimensions for width and height, but then you have to choose the size class that's applied for each dimension. Hmm. So you have like these two kind of, you have to set the the pixels and you have to set the size class. Hmm. It's really odd, but it, that kind of lends its hand to saying we're not thinking, because, you know, if it was adaptive and they were never going to move off of that, they would just let you select the drop down, compact iPad, 
you know, regular yeah, iPhone, whatever. They give but, you a set a set of choices and then add right. one choice whenever that device comes out. But now they let you experiment with weird esoteric with weird dimensions. Yeah. So they're d- and let- they could they could say that that's you know oh it's to test your view controllers when they're contained within another thing. But that's yeah. bullshit. Yeah, it is. Yeah, there you go. You 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 did your part. Thank you. For I'm just saying it. it's 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 you know for years we've had a simulator drop down where you can pick any device they have. Yeah. Well, and now we have this weird one where you set. 500 pixel wide by 1024 iPad. And that, that doesn't make any sense unless they're truly thinking responsibly. Yeah. And yeah. that's a huge switch. They're basically giving you the option to drag your browser up and down. Right, totally. Ex- yeah. Except it's not draggable, which just annoys me. <laughs> right. You it's have to ty- type it into a little text box. It's, it's almost as if they kind of want to obfuscate the, the, the feature a little bit or make it annoying enough to pe- that not have people use it too much. I honestly, but- I think it's just because it's not... They don't think that the developer community at large is ready for that same type of thinking. And how true that is, I have no idea. Because (laughs) I'm influenced by the web background that I have. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's, again, whether it's subconscious because they are not ready themselves for it, (laughs) I don't know. I can't tell. But it it just seems like they said, we want to go responsive, but we want this to be teachable, right? And we want this to, we want to be able to set standards. Because if they just said, you know, go ahead, make make breakpoints wherever you want. People's apps would be crazy. There would be stuff going everywhere. It, there would be a lot of inconsistency. Well, speaking of consistency, that's actually very consistent with the way Apple approaches just user user facing design. But it's because so there's there's always this this weird thing where people say the development design programming design really it, it's all design. Like the way you make a decision, the word design doesn't just mean aesthetics. So the way they approach user-facing design is generally to slowly change things and make people used to them and not jump wherever the bleeding edge of the market is or the bleeding edge of technology is like many other companies do because they want to be like, hey, we were there first. Apple generally like takes, takes its time, maybe too much time because they, they're either extremely focused or they're not in a rush, oddly, and that annoys people, but it seems like they're doing that for developers now. Right, the same, the same kind of, which I feel like that's what the reaction to this this uh, WWDC was is like, developers are excited. They, they, I feel like they can sense, kind of like you can sense, that it's heading in the right direction. Maybe not just fully there yet. The funny thing for me, and this is kind of like criticism in a way, is that I wish they had done that for iOS seven, because to me. They completely skipped that. And uh, it's funny because I think last year, some developers on Twitter or somewhere else were, were saying basically, last year I had shit to do after WWDC and I didn't want to do it. So basically redo everything and make it look different. And then you're probably going to find the tweet, aren't you? I, no, it was a <laughs> David Smith post. There you go. Nice. Yeah. And, and, and then Opportunities, this, not obligations. There you go. So last year was obligations to update to the iOS 7 look and, and the crappy icons that very few people liked. Well, like, you know, some people didn't like. And, um, and all the other stuff that came with it that had nothing to do with functional anything. Generally, very few, very little to do with that. And then this year, it's it's like, hey, here are all these new features like APIs and things. And by the way, look at these uh, adaptive things. And people can kind of go, hmm, I'm going to study that over the summer because uh, maybe I, I should know about size classes by the time the new rollout, the new um, lineup rolls out. So they- I just think it's a, it's really interesting to watch as they, you know, historical, like anti-responsive type company and thinking latches on yeah it's kind of cool and it's it's funny because we can sit here as you know 
people of the web and say, eh, we did all that adaptive <laughs> crap and now we're responsive and, you know, have fun with your annoying workflows for cutting all your images for different things and all that. But it's, it's cool because you can see that it's getting there. And, you know, iOS and native apps, not even just iOS, but native apps in general are not as far removed from the web as people would like to believe. Yeah. And that's another thing we could probably talk about. Is the the, the separate, separation between, between yeah, web and because, you know, I've, I went to um, CocoConf back in March. That sounds like a fun conf. I love Coco. It was fun. It was cool. Did they serve and I went, Coco? You know, I've been going to my Coco Heads meetups in Philly here. Any marshmallows? No marshmallows. <laughs> well, that's sad. <laughs> but yeah, I've been like, you know, kind of trying to immerse myself more in that community than I have been because I've just traditionally been part of the web community. And they're very weirdly related they seem very similar Mm -hmm. but there's kind of like this us versus them mentality in both camps yeah and i and i i feel like i'm trying to be this ambassador that's like look (laughs) we're we're all the same we're not we're not that far off it's funny because i i don't have that foot in ios i mean uh my company code school teaches ios so i have i have friends and and colleagues and and people like that that i know that are dealing with ios and working with ios but for right i said I, i didn't say playing i said dealing with because to <laughs> me it's it for the longest time it, it felt tedious whenever you started going in that path i was like well, I, do, I don't really envy you it's I'm, i envy the um the end user uh, ecosystem in a way because i want to play in that sandbox and that's probably why the the whole like uh swift thing it's a new programming language that's a little friendlier to uh to webs web style developers i guess is that fair that's very fair, and that's right. I was actually going to say that right. That could bridge the gap for uh, us. Yeah, yeah, but, but yeah, go continue. for it. I like where oh. you're going. Well, I forgot where I was going. Actually, uh, oh, where was I going? That's new. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. No, I. Uh, so yeah, where was I going? A little recap. You that. were talking about how you don't envy me going down that right. path, but you envy. The well, this door. is what I don't know if we talked about it last week, but it was basically the, the switch in my head where uh, for a long time I envied the the end result, uh, and I didn't envy relearning all the things that I had learned for the web because there's so many things. The web is this one thing where you you see it as a unit, and then once you start working in it, it's just a collection of encyclopedias of knowledge that you have to open one by one, and then there's always one more. Whereas iOS, although very inaccessible, seemed like a more self-contained and less expansive in this not not in the money sense but in the a sense expansive large uh but now that i guess size classes kind of hint at a maybe more complex user interface building style which i'm okay with and if the the threshold to enter the community to actually become like if you're just the one kid like as a kid as a 15 year old kid right now going into developing apps for the iPhone through Swift would be such a such an exciting opportunity. Like I I I, I almost envy these guys because that's great. They don't have to learn the whole like the whole baggage of C to get into iOS design and development. I think even that that post by the guy who worked on Swift for a while. Do you remember what where that link was? I think his name um, was um, Leonard. I I can't. You tweeted it, but yeah, I'll find it. We'll find it for the show notes, yeah. but he in it in his post about it, he mentions that he's really hoping that Swift becomes the teaching language. Wow! And I I see that being a, a, the case because it is so natural, and it you know the frameworks still have funny names and all that. You still have to remember UI whatever controller and all <laughs> that kind of stuff. There's still that that weirdness, but as the the constructs of the language are extremely teachable, and and it seems like 
the language that will be used, you know, in high school classes, intro to computer science and that kind of stuff. Because not only is it an easy language to learn, but we all have the devices in our pockets. Kids play with iPads when they're young now. Like, it's it's an ecosystem they're part of. It's not like learning, you know, neckbeardy com- computer science like it seemed when I was going to high school. Yeah. Um, it seems like it could be that teaching environment that, that people are really excited about, which is, it's an awesome time to be growing up and, and interested in it because it's it's like a, it's they they open a whole new world to development that's i love that you went there because uh there's two two things i want to touch on is the the accessibility of uh programming as a, as a whole it's just not just programming making software there you go that's better because it's not just programming i didn't get into programming because and into programming i, I got into design because i liked making things that worked like tool ish a little bit like websites and then I got into programming because of that as, as a designer who was really frustrated. I, I saw, so this is going to be a little quick personal anecdote, and then we can go back to uh, the creator of, uh, well, the original creator of Swift. His name is Chris Latner, if you, if you want to look that up. And then the, the, the site, uh, I think, is his personal site. It's called uh, nondot.org. So you can kind of figure out in his story and everything. But So I was on the bus today. And uh, what's great about uh, I, having an iPhone in Paris is that you're not paying more for a hotspot uh, option on your iPhone. So you can actually trigger your 3G to turn into a Wi-Fi hotspot for your computer. So a lot of the time what I do is uh, when I'm taking a, a long ride home with the bus, I, I, I sit down in a slightly secure spot and uh, I... I basically start working on whatever I was obsessing about for because sometimes you have to churn over stuff. Anyway, there's a kid sitting next to me and I can tell he's like gawking a little bit at what I'm doing. And um, I'm typing, I'm, do, I'm doing test-driven, <laughs> I'm doing test-driven development. So I'm, I'm making a test, kind of like scientific way. I'm making a test, asserting something and then testing that it's uh, working, it doesn't. Then I fix the test, I fix the implementation to make the test work. And I'm doing that at a pace, a pace that I've learned because I need it as a feedback loop. Like I do a thing, I check it, I do a thing, I check it. And just, I progress really, the progress is really iterative and fast. And I realized what I was doing. I had like a moment where I stepped out of my, my head for a second and I saw it in his eyes. And in, in, and in his eyes, me on the laptop was probably some, some wizard shit. Like he, he probably looked at it going, what the hell is this guy doing? Like switching tabs every five seconds and like typing stuff. And he looks like he's hacking into whatever the bus or something. Uh, yeah, that's that. I, I'm pretty sure. I like, like this story that you're making up that this kid thought he was in like an episode of 24. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was about to like crash the bus and the guy actually, I think he, he was considering like taking more stops. And I, I, I heard him say to his friend, no, I'm just going to go out of here. And I was like, well, maybe it's maybe I scared him off. And I was kind of super programming hacking powers, but that for me was uh, when I said when I tweeted that uh, earlier today, someone was upset. Uh, someone wasn't upset, but they someone had a really pessimistic view of that, and they responded to me uh, something I'm going to quote. Uh, they said the the it was uh, Stefan Haslinger said that um, he said the digital natives are the digital na- uh, knives. Which is a bummer. So basically saying the people who were born into this world with all this technology we now have, like the iPhone, like the iPad, like the web as it is today, are completely disconnected from how it works. And for, for them, it looks like magic, which is kind of an Apple thing. Um, to them, it, it looks like magic. And it, to them, it's extremely inaccessible. And to me, a guy like Chris Latner and this idea behind Swift 
And more importantly, uh, even than that, it's the the thoughts and the the studies of um, wow, I'm blanking on his name, uh, Brett Victor. So Brett Victor, who wasn't involved in this project, but but uh, wrote a lot and presented a lot of uh, conference talks and things like that about making programming a more interactive, creative, uh, palpable you know, malleable thing that you don't just write code and then expect expect it to do something after you're done you're done typing. You can tweak stuff. There's a bunch of videos we, we have to link to. I'll just make sure to put them in the show notes. But I think it's his uh, inventing on principle talk had the entirety of our of our company just just like drop on their on their chairs and just like wow. Um, and and it's not Again, it's not things that he invented or made up. Like since the 70s, people have thought about ways to make programming more interactive and accessible to kids. But I'm really, really glad that a major effort and a major team at Apple that's actually behind all the stuff that that makes the existing most successful, I guess, ecosystem I can think of for software now is driven by the same kind of people who care about, like you said, making it more accessible, more more friendly, um, and having a playground as a demo, like a playground, a thing where you can type code and it, you see what it does. Yeah, and that's that's what he brought up on Chris Latner's site. He talking about playgrounds, and then he, the last sentence of his Swift section is, "I hope that making programming more approachable and fun will appeal to the next generation of programmers and help redefine how computer science is taught." That's great, and that's like that's such a big part of Swift that I think is being overlooked. And I feel like we we kind of got into it last week about how. It lowered the barrier of entry t- from people to, you know, like us to make the jump from web to native. Um, but yeah. what about the jump from, you know, nothing to native? <laughs> right, yeah. I, I kind of, I, yeah, it's funny, true. you were talking about your, like, your, your origin story almost of like how you got into this. And I, I, I got into it a similar way where I, I actually remember my brother got the original iPhone when it came out. And I remember the first time I played with it, <laughs> I was a, what was I, a sophomore in high school? Uh-huh. And I don't say that. That's just mean. <laughs> this just means so many. No, people. but I. I mean, I. You know, that was. That's when you're still kind of up in the air and where you're going to go. What was I going to do? I don't know. Was I going to mm-hmm. be a sports writer or something? I was kind of down that path. And then I. I played with the. And I had always been interested in graphic design um, mm-hmm. through high school. But I played with the iPhone, and I. I it was the first time I realized like I want to make this stuff that people use. Like that's yeah. that's what I want to do, and that's. I remember that as the moment that I got interested in doing, you know, what we do today. Mm-hmm. But I, I approached it from a website as well because it, there was more, I don't know, schools focused on it. It seemed more approachable. Seemed the barrier to entry was much lower mm-hmm. than anything else. Not as so, the, you're not afraid you're going to fail like miserably in the first right, time you try. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems much easier to get into and and you know I I always wanted to get to the iOS side of things and I did eventually. But I got there through, you know, first I was just doing design, then I, then I started doing development, then I, you know, I got, I, the hook kept getting deeper and deeper. <laughs> um, and I finally got to iOS. But if, I, if Swift was around, I'm trying to think back, if like, if something was that approachable and that teachable, you might have skipped and to it. that fun to learn with playgrounds and things like that, if, it, if that was around, would I have had the whole web deviation that I had? Maybe not. I don't know. And that, that, that sucks because I, I, I like... <laughs> Does it though? Yes, because I, I there's so much that I use the web for, you know, even with iOS, I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to write my own backend to I mean, I guess I could eventually just like I'm writing iOS today, but I learned so much about the web and I approached it from there and then got into iOS. It's just it was an interesting path that 
I'm glad I took the path I did, but yeah. Swift would have made it a lot more interesting, I think. I, I think I agree because see that I like, so it's beyond, it's funny, it's, it's some, the topic that I mentioned in the pre-call that we would probably, that I would want to talk about, but I guess we get to it eventually. It's just any, in any industry, and it, the word industry is kind of a weird word, we're not, we're, we don't make cars or anything, but in any industry, <laughs> when you when you have a different entry point, and I don't just mean like what time you get in, but how you get in, you bring along with you a completely different set of expectations and, and perspective. And it's not just diff- diverse people ethnically or socially or uh, gender-based. Bi- it's simply how you got into programming and design or anything uh, is going to just make you have a different perspective. And it'll be really interesting. I'm, I cannot wait to, to meet the developers that are going to have learned just the same way as like you discover the iPhone. They're going to have learned on the iPhone 6 or 5. And they, they, their first thing ever created would be this, this Swift thing because now it's so much easier, if they, at least if they have a Mac, which I guess it's a huge barrier too. Um, they, they will have a huge different set of assumptions than, than we do. And we'll have to just like, you know, level with them and like figure out, okay, what makes sense rationally with them because they don't have our biases, biases, I don't know. They don't have our, our baggage, basically our web baggage. And is the web even a thing that they think about or do they do the opposite path where they start from swift and then they get to the web because as you said they need a back end yeah yeah i i definitely see that as a as a way that it goes right because even you're writing extensions for ios now you're gonna have to write some javascript like there everything everything is one and and i still love i think you know jeremy keith's um the spirit of the web talk where he talks about everything being the web the web capital w web right everything Mm -hmm. is the web like i i feel like that's where we always end up and yeah there are you know maybe i have a weird view because i like being a generalist and that's what i always want to be and i don't want to be a specialist um so maybe that's just my my bias you know in that direction that i that i i think that it's valuable to know all of this you know everything that you're touching but I do think to some extent that you'll always have some intrigue on the other side, right? Like I, I was writing server stuff, but I wanted to know what was on that native app side or what was on that client side, you know, everything like that. And, and does, it probably works the other way too, where somebody is writing, you know, just the iOS side code, but they, they start drifting into that other side. And, and it's kind of just this cross pollination that happens, you know, natively. I think that's beautiful. I think that's just as beautiful as as diverse ethnic bar- backgrounds that make you be more empathetic to things that people would not be empathetic to. It's just you, you'll get. So, what did you start with? Did you start with uh, graphic design? You said, or or just yeah, raw in high pro- school I was doing graphic design courses. Right. And my so to me, when I talk to programs, there's a. I feel like I mentioned this. Maybe I didn't, but um, um, at a big conference this year, one of the leaders of uh, of the Ruby and Rails. Uh, um, I guess industry too. They just had this uh, a part of his uh, very controversial. Otherwise, talk was kind of reduced to yeah, there was some some thoughts about the, about te- how you test software, and then there were some really interesting thoughts about how you approach software and uh, being a being more of an. That's why I studied English first. So even though I had this graphic design and photography thing, I I had through just the way I had to learn English and be interested in it when I went to college, I had this kind of literate approach to things like where I cared more about words and how to name things. I hated 
one one character variables like I despise that stuff so basically people who write uh, scribbles instead of code it's not scribbles like if your programming language allows you to have 25 character variables and method names and stuff like that why the fuck are you not using that to be expressive and I think that's what drew me eventually to Ruby where expressiveness uh, is, is like a key thing which interestingly was also made by a foreigner who learned the English language and decided to make it more see that's like Japanese guy who learns English makes a, a patchwork of existing programming languages and now suddenly the English speaking world is like well, well that's really nice I feel like the having those different approaches to software development to uh, platforms so like native uh, with huge quotes and 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 I and with the web I think that's that's fantastic because it's it's a bunch of stuff that's just going to make sure that despite what you came in with regardless of what you came in with you'll have to you'll have to basically make it make sense like if 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 you just out of dogma say we need to keep the web as it is today because it was nice in the past then that i mean that's fine but it's, that's nostalgia that's just like you're afraid of losing something you hold dear but does it still need to exist exactly like it was when you were like getting into the web and i like I, that that kind of thought of things though because yeah? you're you're saying how like what you've and it's not even like what you came into the industry as a whole in right but as you come into each community that you become a part of or each language or each environment or whatever it is mm-hmm. even company i guess yep what came before that influences it greatly and that's the cross-pollination that made us get to where we are yes like the, the guy that created um laravel taylor otwell he started, or not started, but he was formerly a .NET developer, mm. right? Say what you will, but that's oh, yeah. what he was. And he he started writing more and more PHP, and he ended up creating Laravel. And a lot of what Laravel has in it is influenced by the good parts of .NET. Huh. I didn't and know And it's that. this interesting kind of, you know, using the bits and pieces that you like from other places and using it to your advantage elsewhere. And 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 that's something I've always found interesting is how I can, I, I guess, you know, like I was saying, how I learned the server side and iOS side and all that, how things that I'm doing in either place kind of influence each other. Yeah. And how I can take design patterns that I'm writing in JavaScript and apply them to PHP or the other way around or all of these different kind of influences that we get from just working in our different fields. And not only, you know, writing code differently from yourself or just bringing on people to your team that have written different code in the past. I think it's just an interesting confluence of things that... that Create cool stuff. Yeah, I think the perfect example of that cross-pollination to me is um, when I was going through, uh, so Full Sail University, which is the school we went to uh, together, um, in the intro to object-oriented programming class, I had, you know, like you have this, you're, say, on Twitter, good example, or Facebook, and you think you have this amazingly original thought that nobody had before. Like, for me today was the idea to put... uh, uh, milk ice cubes inside of my cold brew coffee because that way it doesn't dilute it with water it dilutes it with amazing yummy milk you can take it oh there you go you can become a millionaire on my back that's completely fine so i had the same kind of like ooh, nobody's must have thought of that before uh we should make a database that works kind of like uh 
you know, like organisms that have smaller organisms inside of them and smaller or- organisms inside of them. And I was super excited. I was like, wow, that's like a, that's like a, an organism database. I was like, it's really cool. Like they store stuff inside of themselves and stuff. And I think maybe, two, maybe, maybe a month or like a week later, someone, uh, like casually mentions like no sequel databases and mongo and couch db and i just deflated because that's exactly what i was thinking of and maybe not even that good of an idea when you when you actually try to use them which is a, a whole different issue but and and the, the same is true for the the way i i was like object oriented uh programming when i discovered it, i was like oh my god this is like this is like the body there's like parts talking to each other because that's exactly what object-oriented programming is, is even though it says object, it's about messages. It's about objects sending signals to each other instead of objects reaching into each other to make each other do things or having a recipe that says, first do this, then do that, then do that. That's scripting, I guess, in the very traditional sense. We usually make a script that just has no intelligence. It just follows the script. And object-oriented programming started to allow for like, wow, well, maybe I have an object and it has a behavior. And like when you send it a specific kind of message with a specific kind of thing with it, maybe it'll figure out what to do. You don't have to tell it. That's actually rooted in biology. When I think in the 60s and 70s, when uh, I don't know if it started with Smalltalk, but it basically was a Xerox. So Xerox Park where uh, the graphical user interface was first implemented, I think. And where I think Steve Jobs visited to basically like shop for hey steal their ideas <laughs> take all the ideas yeah. they, but to his I guess to his credit uh, nobody was using them they were like playing with these things like oh isn't it cool and nobody was actually running with them and one of his biggest regrets I remember from uh, a few few years ago I th- or maybe in the biography one of his greatest regrets was not to have noticed or paid more attention to one of the things that were on, that was on a computer there. And I, th- I, th- I think it might have been Smalltalk. Maybe I'm confusing it with something else. But it was basically, Smalltalk is an object-oriented programming language. But it came with a whole uh, integrated development environment uh, that was called Smalltalk, I think, too. And, and then that in which you could basically manage, manage code more efficiently, et cetera, et cetera. That stuff made so much sense to him, but then he moved on and like the the the, the exciting user interface um, appealing to the masses kind of thing excited him more. So he, he kind of like put the other one on the back burner. But that is all just science talking to other science. So basically, computer scientists uh, getting interested in in uh, in organisms and biology and being like, hmm, I wonder how the brains communicates with the organs in the body. Nervous system. Hmm. How does that work? Signals. Huh. Electrical signals. That's that sounds like a computer. And then they figure out. Wait. Well, you know what? That might actually be a really sustainable, maintainable, efficient way to build a system to make it like a human body or like any body, any organism. That just fascinates me because it's just like like these two things that were progressing in parallel and suddenly psh, intersect. Yeah, you and realize so- it's like pretty much the same thing. Right. In architecture, I guess. Right. Yeah. And just like the, the, the Jobs mantra of uh, the intersection of uh, liberal, liberal arts, arts and, technology. and technology, it's the same thing. It's like two sciences that don't talk to one another, which I guess that takes us back to the web. Well, like the Internet is like the, the, the core reason for the existence of the <laughs> Internet is cooperation between scientists to all, uh, basically avoid duplicated research and share 
the results of their research and their and their papers and stuff like that so that they can reproduce experiments in Italy when they're made in Spain not without having to travel or like record stuff and that's yeah. the end of my rant but well I'm, to bring this all full exciting. circle yeah do it how much is Apple now being influenced by what we just did on the web for five years right we figured out responsive we we did all this stuff we yeah. tried stuff <laughs> stuff worked stuff didn't we tried it all and they took oh that's interesting let's take the bits and pieces from it that we need and and it's this cross-pollination like i said how the web and, and native app communities were kind of so separate and and thought that we had you know just a little bit of of heritage shared right we just thought we had the ancestry shared mm-hmm. but really we have a lot more in common than than we think naturally and if we just stop being weird about it and start going to each other's meetups and and let each other cross pollinate yep. our other in like we have things to learn from iOS side and they have stuff to learn from the website and it, and it shows through how Apple's going about this that they've realized that you know we came up with something pretty good with responsive and we we workshopped it out we figured out the issues we're still working through some but there's something there that they can take and they can implement and they can make better in their own system and that's something that we never should lose as our kind of you know, developer-y, computer science programming stuff. We we should always be trying to take things from other places that might make our ideas better. And I just wish that people would stop being, you know, I I I've barely ever write Ruby, but I'll go to the hell to a Ruby meetup. Like, mm-hmm. I'll go. Who cares? You know, I'll talk, I'll talk to people. I won't even talk about Ruby half the time, but it'll be fun. Mm-hmm. And I feel like people need to stop thinking that, you know, these are the meetups for these people and these are the meetups for those people. If you want to learn something and you know nothing about it, just go to a meetup. Mm-hmm. You'll figure people. it out. Yep. And it's just, even if you even if you don't want to figure it out, like go and bring your side of things and listen to their side of things and figure out what you can learn from it because there's so much to be had there. I can guarantee you if you don't want to figure it out, someone will will be there to try to make you figure <laughs> exactly. it out. Exactly. Somebody will convince you to figure yeah. it out. And I like or how... Or tell you that you never want to figure it out. One of the two. <laughs> Maybe that's not for you. But yeah. the, I like how you brought it back to get like a you know full circle. And really the... <laughs> this is the... I'm not cynical, but this is kind of the cynical end is like... Apple lets others do their R&D for them. Yeah, and they totally. kind of like, okay, are you done now? And, and then look back whenever it's more ready, which yeah. in, in itself is, a, I mean, it's, it takes a lot of... But they do guts. things, you know, that they do things there that others don't do, and then we steal it from them. So it's, it's all cyclical. I mean, it's just... That's true. That's probably not how you say that. It's cyclical, right? Yeah. I don't know. Whatever. Now it, I feel like you. <laughs> no, it's, it's bother, you, maybe you should go to bed. Cause I that, probably, you know, it's like <laughs> 1 a.m. where you are. 120 exactly yeah. i guess we're almost going to wrap it up but let's uh I, you know, like you, you you went full circle i can get more full circle on you i can <laughs> i can circle your full circle oh that was hard to say like steve Harkle. circle your fur uh the, the american american uh culture has been this big uh overwhelming super not just a, a technical superpower in the sense of like military and stuff like that it's just a cultural superpower that has influenced even like you know Soviet Russia when it was still Soviet Russia like that's huge influence. But funny enough, um, even though Japan, which was heavily influenced by by it too, and because of the war and everything like that, even though Japan was kind of like in I think in the two thousands and kind of a, like a downswing. Uh, one of the ways Japan ended up being kind of like up on the up and up again, like in recent years, uh, there's a really cool story that I. I I really want to find them and put in the show notes. I think it was in Fortune magazine or one of those like, you know, uh, periodicals that have like like long term, long, long range stories. And it was about uh, how Japanese 
um, industry like, entrepreneurs and and, and craftspeople were basically taking established not memes but established tropes of American culture like jeans, whiskey. Uh, I, I have more. I, I there's more about America than that, but I, I guess the iPhone is the on <laughs> the edge. How long here for? <laughs> <laughs> I was I was drinking only water. I promise. But uh, the, the, it's like basically the the reason why um, they are successful is not because they're copying, which is I mean another whole you know we can talk about <clears throat> Samsung. It'll be episode two. Yeah. Yep. Uh, um, you should boy- boycott Samsung if you care about like. <laughs> Authors and creativity. I guess that's bullshit because Apple steals stuff too. But I guess that's another. Anyway, Japanese and American culture. Okay, so they, what they did was they they have their own heritage, and their own heritage in, in, involves a lot of craftsmanship and uh, and attention to detail, which sometimes is part of the American culture, but m- most of the time not as much as the Japanese culture. Which uh, huge generalization. Bear with me. And what they've done is basically produce the same kind of whiskey, the same kind of jeans, the same kind of food or uh, or fashion or things like that, or accessories that seem typically American, and they've put their twist on it by just going the extra mile, the extra detail, the thing that people just went like, oh, to do mass market, we can't really do this because this is tedious enough, and they went there. And suddenly, the luxury end of those markets start going to Japan and, and and when really Japan was more like uh, like technology and like cheap stuff in the in the 70s and 80s now they're seen as this elite uh you know fancy uh crap like just the food think of the food like just extremely extremely intricate food and even more than the french and i'm french like there's more michelin rated restaurants High like three Michelin star restaurants in Tokyo than anywhere else in the world combined, I think, or in in Japan. I th- it might be out of my ass, but yeah, there's there's <laughs> that sounds good though. No, re- really, like there's so many of them, and it's 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 because of the the really pure attention to detail. So basically, yeah. what I'm trying to get get to is that that kind of work, that kind of finishing the the race, is something that a lot of people just don't feel like doing. They just would rather like jumped and cut to market and do th- stuff like that so it's kind of nice that there's like a company the easy route, yeah right it's not necessarily the easy out because you just like you ran the whole f- freaking marathon you don't want to sprint <laughs> right that's that's i guess that's an app metaphor there because analogy metaphor hi um yeah the web has been the long race it's been like a lot of experiment a lot of failures and stuff like that and y- you know that that's a lot for one company to take on that's a lot of stuff and now apple kind of you know we we saw how you guys did that and Here's our take on it. Yeah. yeah. Well, this ended at a much cooler spot than I thought it would, yeah. to be honest. Like, I, I just think that, that idea of learning from things that aren't necessarily one-to-one or anything like that, or even your own language, or even yeah. not your own you know, venture, like you were talking about other sciences, that's just a really cool yep. really cool take that I've, I feel like we should never lose. Look at us being inspirational. Yeah, it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we can end there. That was pretty good, yeah. Yeah. Have a good uh, one. So that's a multi-log, episode oh. one. Because that, so, so, what, what is the number? Uh, v zero point zero point one. Is that what we're doing? <laughs> that's just because I'm just a change log freak. Yeah, that's I fine. I apologize. Oh, it's good because it started. You know, our first one was about change logs, so it's good. <laughs> you sounds convinced. We're on iTunes now. <laughs> yes, we're on iTunes. We have a website. It's called themultilog.com. You and probably lo- know that if you're listening, but R- right, that would make sense. Yeah, but you're right. Yeah, tell your friends. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's not log with a G, it's G-U-E because we're fancy. Yeah, because he's French. Yeah, there you go. A little bit of fancy in your day.